If you have your Bible with you, then I encourage you to open it with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 19. Before we get reading, though, in there, um, I want to do something, and that is I want to read part of Fred's newsletter. Um, Fred Sloan, who just spoke to us about the prison discipleship ministry. Uh, I just want to read this one section. There's some responses from, um, from people who are serving different sentences and whatever, and so here's an example of one person with a release date of 2080. Praise the Lord, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, our risen Savior. I praise the blessings of the Lord are everywhere you are. Uh, the re- this Resurrection Sunday is a celebration of the day the world was changed forever. God was not only proven powerful, He was proven faithful. When we find ourselves down to nothing, we can be assured that God is up to something. There's real power in the gospel, whether you are sitting here, or you're sitting in a cell, or you live in India, or China, or Africa, or wherever you may be. The gospel is true. The reason I wanted to read that is not only because Fred is here, but as he was sitting there, it reminded me of it, and it sets kind of some context for what we've been doing in our sermon series. Remember where we've been through Genesis and Exodus, right? The Lord has just freed... The descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, who he made this promise to, to bless them, make them do a great nation, but they'd been slaves in Egypt. They'd been freed at Passover. They crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. The Lord is now their king, working to get Egypt out of them, not just them out of Egypt. It's the story of empire that he's trying to say, no, it's not about empire. It's not about all you can do. It's about me. And following me. He's teaching them to depend on him and his providence, his protection, and his sustenance in life. And so now we come to this place after they're out of Egypt and they've settled at this spot temporarily in the desert at Mount Sinai where the Lord gives them his laws for how they should live. And this raises all kinds of questions for us. What are these laws? I mean, could you name the Ten Commandments? And and what's the nature of the relationship that we have with the Lord who rescues and gives us laws? What is the nature of that relationship? Well, I invite you to follow along with me as I read Exodus chapter 19. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt, did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people 
and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountains to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, Prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us. Put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, Go down and bring Aaron up with you, but the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Spirit of the living God, I pray that you will bless the reading of your holy word, which is inerrant, which is true, was true thousands of years ago, it is true today, and I pray that you will use it to speak into our lives, that we might hear your good news, and we might walk in your good ways. And we ask this in the powerful risen name of Jesus, amen. I was about 10 or 12 years old. We were standing alongside the road with a whole bunch of cars pulled over and hundreds of people alongside the road looking a couple of miles across the bay to Cape Canaveral. And with the naked eye, we could see the tower where the space shuttle was prepared to launch. And with binoculars, we could see the space shuttle. And as we waited... And we listened on our car radios. We heard the countdown. T minus 30 seconds. T minus 15. And smoke began to billow and plume up into the clear blue sky. Fire flew from beneath the jet engines. And the ground where we were shook. And finally you could see the shuttle lift off through the smoke. It was awe-inspiring. And I imagine that that is very, very small in comparison to what it must have been like to be there with the people of Israel on that day at the foot of Mount Sinai as the Lord descends on it in cloud and and fire and thunder and lightning and, and speaks the Ten Commandments to them, which are in chapter 20, which we didn't read yet. Imagine you're standing that safe distance from Sinai. It's covered in smoke. The mountain trembles. Trumpets blare. The voice of God speaks. How do you view that relationship? Awe 
awe-inspiring, no doubt. Would it be fear and trembling? Would it be keep the law or else? My guess is that you, like many people today, typically think of the Ten Commandments as as good things. That is, they're good from a value standpoint. Those are things we should do, right? Let's not kill people. That's a bad idea, okay? And so we say, yeah, those are good. But my guess is that you also personally feel a little bit differently about it. Personally, you may feel a bit burdened by them, a bit restricted by them. Like, I don't know, it's just like, that's a lot of laws. I mean, and and perhaps, as a freedom-loving American, you just want independence and not laws. And, And while it's true here that God established his people as a new nation with himself as their king, and while it's true that he gives them laws to live by, what if this event is not about the fear of a dictator, but the love of one who pursued them and rescued them? What if the nature of the relationship should be understood more nuanced, more completely? Not just in awe-inspired fear, but awe-inspired love. You see, what what I want to propose to you today, what I am suggesting is this. I'm suggesting to you that what God is doing here at Mount Sinai, though he is a king and there is new nation and his people, I am proposing to you that what he's actually doing is he has proposed to his people. He has said, let's get married. And if that's right, then it provides another nuance, another metaphor of this relationship that we have with God. This is the wedding. Now, in order to talk about that more, um, I think I need to first prove that to you because that's not very obvious from the text uh, and it brings a different perspective to it. Um, I I am not the inventor of this. I I heard it. Um, You may be familiar with a a Bible um, study video series put out by Focus on the Family called That the World May Know and Ray Vanderlaan is a teacher in it and he at Mount Sinai talks about this and explains it in a bit more detail but I want to first try to prove to you that this covenant being made can also be seen as a covenant being made in the context of a wedding not just as a nation to a king so let me suggest you why I think that's true and first I'm going to point you back to verse six um, where it mentions the kingdom of priests okay and it says God God has called them out to be a kingdom of priests and you're like I don't get it that's not wedding talk And I will agree with you, that's not. And what he is saying is here, it supports the concept of the new nation, his kingdom, his people, okay? He's clearly doing that. And they are to be a new kingdom of priests, meaning the priests represent God on earth. So what he is doing is he's saying, you are going to be my people to demonstrate what it is like to bring order out of chaos. Because remember, I made everything in the garden, it was good, and then it went bad. And what I want you to do as my priest, as my people living out my purposes on earth, is to restore the shalom of the garden. To live in such a way that that's what would happen. To be good stewards, as, you, as we were originally commanded in Genesis 1 and 2. To rule the earth. And that is a metaphor of it. But notice, even as he's talking about that in verse 5, what he says. He says in verse 5, Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. 
Out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. That word treasured possession is used for a royal treasury or an inheritance and, and often refers to what a, a king's treasure is, gold, is silver, and stuff like that. But several usage, usages of the, of the word, of this phrase, in the Old Testament do not refer to treasure but to people. In other words, it's not objects. It's relational. It's relational and God is saying, you, you out of everybody, I choose you. I choose to be in relationship with you. You are the one I treasure. That's what he's saying to Israel there. And that sounds a bit like wedding talk. That sounds a bit like, out of all the people I've ever seen or, or dated or whatever, I love you. I set my affection on you. Now, furthermore, I want to suggest to you what uh, people do in verse 8. And maybe, can you scroll to verse 8 and put that on the screen? If you have it, I'll read it here, and you guys can hear it, or you can look in your Bibles and see it. Moses comes down and reports this to the people, and what do the people say? God says, I choose you, and they say, okay, we do. We will do everything the Lord has said. Sounds, again, a little bit like a wedding, right? And then in verse 10, the people, Moses is instructed by God to go tell the people to consecrate themselves to prepare for this day when the Lord descends on the mountain and they meet Him at the foot of the mountain, okay? And so they're to consecrate themselves. Now, now let me just pause for a second. Those are a few verses, but and tell you in an ancient Near Eastern wedding kind of what happened and what that was like. In an ancient Near Eastern wedding, after the woman was proposed to, the, the, the groom-to-be goes to the house where she lives, proposes, leaves. They, they have a ceremony, their engagement, if you want to call it that, okay? They're, they're engaged. The groom leaves and goes back to prepare the place. Okay, he goes back to make his home, probably near the family home where they're going to live, and prepare it for them. And then when that home's prepared, the groom leaves there, comes back to the bride and says, okay, it's ready, now let's get married. And then what happens is there's a ceremony for the whole village that lasts for days. And the bride would have to consecrate herself to set herself apart and prepare herself okay, for the wedding day. And then she's ready to get married. She would be led out by her wedding party, her friends, her family, from her house, going to the house of the groom where she's presented with the blast of a ram's horn. And the ceremony happens in which they are then united together. Notice verse 16. On the morning of the third day, when the Lord said He would descend, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. He said there would be the blast of a ram's horn, a trumpet. And so there is a trumpet blast. And then, verse 17, Moses leads the people from the camp to the mountain to meet with God at the foot of the mountain. And, and actually, the Hebrew kind of says beneath the mountain. And that doesn't mean like buried under it, but below it there. This is their space. This is their altar, if you will, where they've come before God to say, okay, we're coming out. We're coming to meet you. And there they make, well, what happens next in weddings? You take your vows. You make your covenant agreement. Your stipulations. And that's what they do. Exodus 20, which we didn't read, and God speaks all these words, and He gives them the Ten Commandments. And then following that for the next three chapters continues to give Moses further instruction of what that means. 
And I want, want to show you again in, in Exodus chapter 24, when they're confirming this covenant, in verse 3, it says this. It says, everything the Lord has said, we will do. And they say the same thing again in verse 7. In other words, God's proposed to them and said, here's the stipulations, here's the vows, do you take me? And they say, yes, we do. Now, you may think that's a bit of a stretch, and perhaps it is, but I don't think it is. And I want to suggest to you that I don't think it is for a few more reasons, still Scripture, some of which I'll read to you. Um, Isaiah and Hosea both use the repeated theme of Israel being God's bride, who has left him, abandoned him, been unfaithful, but God pursues and woos back. I'll put a verse on the screen for you, Jeremiah 2.2. So the prophet Jeremiah um, says this, This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness. Jeremiah is specifically being told by God to say this to the people that you were my bride when you followed me in the wilderness. It is how God views his people. Like I said, Isaiah and Hosea say the same thing. But let me, let me even show you some New Testament things about this. John 14, verses 2 and 3. Jesus is talking to his disciples now, not referring to Israel, but he's saying to them, he knows he's about to leave, that his time is coming to die. And he meets with them and he says, do not be afraid, right? And he says, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. Now, do you remember how I described what the wedding was like in the ancient Near East? What is Jesus saying? He's saying, look, I'm going to make the place. And we're getting married. And furthermore, then he says in John 14, just below that in verse 15, he says, if you love me, keep my commands. Right? And if, so if we're getting married, there's vows. There's stipulations to this marriage. Jesus is using the same metaphor, the same imagery that God uses with the people at the Exodus and the prophets use throughout the prophets. And we see it in the last book of the Bible in Revelation 19 where we're told in verse 7 that the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. So I hope I've given you enough evidence that you can see that, that while, yes, they are a new nation, and yes, God is their king, that's not the only way that God views and describes the nature of that relationship. He is saying, I have called you out, my people, because I've set my affection on you. I love you. Let's get married. So the second thing I want to do for you today is to try to help you understand some of the implications of that for your relationship with the Lord. And the first thing I think that's important to recognize is this. God rescues the people from Egypt, right? Yeah? Does he do that? And then he gives them law, yeah? And what order does he do that in? The order we just said, the order that's presented. He rescues, and then he says, and if you want to be in relationship with me, here's the vows. Here's the law. See, his rescue, his redemption, his justification always comes first. That puts us in right standing with him. And then he says, okay, living in relationship with me looks like this. 
here's the laws, here's the rules, here's the stipulations. That's not just in the New Testament, it's in the Old Testament. Now that's important because a lot of times we get confused. You may read the Bible and go, I don't know, the God in the Old Testament, the God in the New Testament, they just look like different people, different, like I don't know, I can't deal with the Old Testament. And what I'm telling you, and what I showed you through the theme is that it's one God, the same God from beginning to end, who never changes. And that God of the New Testament is the same God of the Old Testament. It's the same God we've seen from the beginning, that grace is always his first response to man's failure. Adam and Eve in the garden, they fail, he comes looking for them and approaches them. Where are you, Adam? When they are removed from the garden, before that, the promise is he will provide the Messiah, the Redeemer that is to come. And when they're removed from the garden, he says, but I will provide a way back. In other words, God is always responding in his justice, but full of grace and mercy. Saying, here is the way for you, my people, because I've set my affection on you. Christian, if that's you, he's set his affection on you. You cannot earn your way into God's favor. He chose you as His bride. He pursued you. He wooed you to Himself. He won you over and He invites you into relationship with Him. That's important. We understand that. But the other part of that that I think we need to understand then is we, we, we hear that and we can feel like, oh, that's, that's really good. That's nice. And then, and then we read laws and commands and we're like, well, those aren't nice. I don't like those. And we have this perspective in which we think law and love are opposite things. That the two cannot somehow exist together. And that's not true. It's not true practically for you in life, but it's also not true biblically in what we're instructed and told about. Law is linked to love. They are not opposites. They go hand in hand. I mean, for example, right here at Sinai, God rescues them, loves them, and then gives them law. I mean, think about common vows at a wedding. Listen to some wedding vows. When I do a wedding, people come to the front of the altar down here as the bride comes down the aisle, and then the first vows are vows of intent that they speak to the minister. Do you want to go forward with this? The vows of intent usually sound like this. Will you have this man to be your wedded husband to live with him according to God's commands in the holy bonds of marriage? Commands, bonds, covenant, and will you love, honor, and cherish him, forsaking all others, so long as you both shall live? Exclusive marital stipulations. Right? And then, then they come up on stage, and we do the other parts of the ceremony, right? And there's probably reading, and song, and scripture, and, and a homily. And then they take their vows to one another. And it might sound like this. I, Andrew, take you, Michelle, that is my wife, to be my wedded wife, and I do promise and covenant, covenant, before God and these witnesses to forsake all others and be your faithful, loving, and devoted husband in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, as long as we both shall live. It's full of action. It's not just touchy-feely words. The commitment that's required is sickness, health, better or worse, exclusively faithful. The commitment is there, but it's a commitment that is made in the context of love because I love you, I am willing to do this. 
right? I mean, marriage not protected by such rules or such vows is not really defined. And you don't really know what love is. You're just kind of together. Love is defined when it costs you something. Parents, you love your children and it hurts because it costs you something when they fail, when you have to pay for whatever they broke. Because when it costs you, you know there's definition to it and love then must come and meet there. On your wedding day, when it came to the vows, were you just like, um, yeah, forget about the commandments, let's just kiss and get to the party? I mean, like, 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 no, the vows are special, right? Those are important things. Was it a burden for you to express love? Be like, oh no, I gotta say vows? Oh man! I mean, there's some fear. Maybe you had some shaking in your boots because you're realizing the commitment you're making that day. Wow, I am making vows for life. God is saying here to his people, I love you, and if you love me, these are the vows you take. Now, if that's all true, and I, and I think that it is, I think it's one of the nuanced ways that this is talked about, then how do we look at the Ten Commandments? What is God saying in the context of a wedding vow? You shall have, the first one is, you shall have no other gods before me. What is God saying? You are exclusive to me fidelity to me above all others. I'm your only one true husband, your one true God, no other lovers. You shall not have any images of me which are not really me. What's he saying? Yeah, don't make any other pictures of other lovers. It's only me. Do not misuse my name. Don't take it in vain, right? We are wedded is what he's saying, so don't bring shame on the family. You are now connected to me. We have the same name. The fourth one, remember the Sabbath day. Rest, keep it holy. What is he saying in the context of marriage? He's saying, you know what? Our relationship is important. Make time for me. We have to meet together. Furthermore, I didn't even point this out earlier, but what happens in between Exodus 20 and 24 is they get instructions to build the tabernacle. What's the tabernacle? It's like the temple. It's the tent in the wilderness. And the tabernacle is the place where what? where the Ark of the Covenant is kept, where God descends in cloud to do what? To dwell with his people. Because we got married. We live together. Now, of course, in the New Testament, you have the Spirit of God. Christian, today, you have the Spirit of God dwelling within you. Because when you said, I do, he said, good, we live together now. Right? And so... That relationship, take time for that relationship. Worship's important. Church and fellowship with believers is important. That time with God. Just like you have to spend time with your spouse and invest in that relationship, you do with God. And the rest of those are how you treat others in the family that we've created now. You're going to respect and honor father and mother because you honor me. You're going to not murder. I gave you life. I'm the giver of new life. Only I decide when that happens. Don't commit adultery. Just like you're exclusively faithful to me, you be exclusively faithful in your marriage. Don't steal. I'm your provider and sustainer who brought you out of Egypt. You don't need to steal anything. I've given you stuff every day. Manna and water every day. Like clockwork, you have it. Don't give false testimony. 
Be honest with me and honest with others. Don't slander someone else's name. Don't speak poorly against them. Don't covet because you know what? This all starts in your heart. Your heart is the wellspring of life. And out of your heart will flow these desires. What he's doing, he's saying, look, here's the vows. This is what it looks like for us to be in relationship together. And when I, when I meet with couples for premarital counseling, I often ask them to write seven reasons why they love the other person and three reasons why this is the right time for them to get married. And it's so awesome. I love doing it and meeting with couples. And because they write out these reasons, and they're fantastic. And, and they're talking about um, all these great feelings they have and how they're encouraged and supported and how deeply in love they are. And they often cite memorable moments or events as signs, as just like this moment, our love will endure. It's no burden for them at all to talk about the way they will love and serve one another because they're in love. And the question that's being posed to us here today is, is, will you say, I do, to the one who has said, he is always faithful, the Lord of the universe who says, I will take care of you in hard times and in good times, for richer or poorer, in sickness and health, I will be faithful, I will never leave you. Will you say, I do? And maybe you've already said, I do. Maybe you haven't. Maybe today needs to be the day the day in which you hear maybe God calling to you, let's get married. Because he is the one from the beginning of the world throughout every page of scripture is the one who says, I am the one who loves my people. Are you his people? Have you said, I do? We're going to see a little bit next week what happens in chapter 32 right after they get married. <laughs> doesn't start off so well for him. You could read ahead if you want. And then how does God respond to that? And I think when we look at that, you'll see, oh, this really does look like marriage. But I want to leave you with these questions today. These are your takeaway questions I'm going to give you. You can put those on the screen. Do you primarily see your relationship with God as a citizen relationship to a king or a love relationship to a spouse? Again, both of those are true, okay? But one of the implications of that is the second question. If you primarily see your relationship to God as citizen and king, you probably end up thinking a lot like in duty and paying taxes and are kind of unhappy and bitter about the relationship. But if you see God, that relationship, as the love of a spouse, then it's like you love him and you're like, let's go on a date. I want to know you more. Tell me more about you. And he's written you letters to read about them. And so I want you this week to take some time to consider how you will demonstrate your vows to Jesus. Because I know it's hard. I know at times we're just like, I don't know, I can't keep going. But you know what? God said, I do. Christian, he loves you deeply. And he's not leaving. when that love captures your heart, you know what you want to do? You go, yeah, I want to do whatever he says. Just like the people at the mountain. We will do everything he says. Will you walk in his ways? Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you will pour out your blessings on your bride, your church. 
Lord, I pray that you will help us as, as your church, as your bride, to love, looking to our groom, looking to the words of the letters that you've written us, of being with you, of enjoying the sacraments that we partake in. Lord, I pray that you will seal those to us, that you will use the preaching of your word to instruct us, to encourage us in life. And I pray, Lord, as we go from this week to next week and kind of look at part two of this marriage, that for those who feel like they have completely failed and messed up and are unworthy, that you will show them your kindness, your mercy, your gentleness, and your grace. That you will pursue them, woo them back to yourself. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.